Welcome to Africa Knows. My name is David Earhart, and in this first episode, I'm proud to be talking to Mohamed Sani Umar, a professor of history of Amarobele University, Zaria, in Nigeria. Sani is an expert on Islamic thought and religious pluralism and has worked in Europe and the US as well as in Nigeria. And our conversation will touch on a lot of different subjects, including Sani's own career, the historical development of Nigerian academia, the different forms that scientific knowledge can take, and the question whether there is something that we can call specifically African knowledge. So, welcome, Sani. Okay, well, uh, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, so we can we can dive in, and I think maybe start with the, the talk, this, the topic we've discussed also earlier, and one of the key themes of Africa knows decolonization uh, of of the academy. Um, what do you understand by this? I mean, it means a lot of things to a lot of people. Um, so I'm curious what you think about it. So one uh, one obvious aspect of decolonization, of course, the one that has been objected to very vigorously for a very long time is the idea of devaluing of non-European societies, cultures, and history. The famous uh, reports that uh, symbolize this is the question of Africa has no history prior to the coming of the Europeans. There was only darkness and that kind of talk. Decolonization is the critique, uh, the exposing of this idea of European society as the privileged gold standard against which the societies of other parts of the world, Africa inclusive, are to be judged. And often the judgment is uh, negative. And this idea of decolonization in this sense has been, of course, uh, the kind of thing that Edward Said pursued in his very famous classic Orientalism, uh, in which he was extremely relentless in his critique of the devalued representation. I think essentially in his own case, Middle Eastern societies, but also in the same category, of course, is the work of uh, Mudimbe. He follows in very close steps of uh, Edward Said in critiquing uh, portrayals of Africa uh, in European thought broadly understood, including the arts and so on and so forth. So uh, decolonization of the academy in the sense of treating different cultures as, you know, like autonomous human experiences with their own negative and positive characterizations or traits is one sense I want you to, in my mind, when you talk of decolonization of the academy, what comes to mind is that sense of the colonial economy, the colonial academy, such as, for example, famous institutes of Oriental studies across Western European societies, where the study of non-European societies uh, was championed. Now, it is very easy to stereotype the institutional framework uh, within which this kind of colonial knowledge was produced. Like the, if you take the London School of Oriental and African Studies or similar institutes in other Western capitals where knowledge about other societies was produced, it is very easy to stereotype them and say they all produce negative portrayals of other societies. But there have also been the platforms against uh, in which critique of the negative portrayal of 
uh, non-European societies was equally articulated. Uh, there were also the platforms within which basic knowledge, even if not always um, uh, portrayed in celebratory fashion, just the basic role knowledge of cultures, languages, religions, and societies of other parts of the world were championed, were produced, were published. So it's, there's kind of a double edge to it, a, a, a nuanced understanding of the colonial heritage of the academy, especially in the Western world, will have to take account of the fact that as Said and Mudimbe and people who follow them argued, these academies have been part of not only the intellectual devaluation of other cultures and societies, but they have also been kind of instruments of colonial and imperial domination. They provided the intellectual articulation that uh, lend credence and support and ideological warrants for others. That is a fact that cannot be denied. But equally, I think important is the fact that that same type of institutions have been the platforms through which alternative conception of non-European societies were produced. You can go back perhaps to the early 19th century travelogues, or to early 20th century anthropological classics like Malinowski's work and so on. Yeah. Or I have in particular examined, for example, the work of the German traveler, uh, Heinrich Bath, three volume encyclopedic um, material, in which you, if you read it carefully, you, you will see that uh, the critique of Said Amudimbe, to say the best, were over exaggerated and were not nuanced. Yeah. Uh, for example, for example, one strand of the critique in both Said and Mudimbe is the muting of the voice of the native in the articulations of Orientalist knowledge. Now, if you read Heinrich uh, uh, Bath's travelogue, <laughs> the natives are loud and clear. <laughs> yeah. What do you, what, what you mean? Yeah. What, what I mean is that. Um, Heinrich Bath relied on native <laughs> experts to construct his narrative. And he reproduced them. He reproduced their writing in his appendices, like yeah. uh, Mukhtar Al-Kunti that he met in Timbuktu. He reproduced extensively, like the Chronicler of Bono, even Fartua. Heinrich uh, yeah. Bath's account of the history of Bono was not more or less reproduction of the account of uh, Bono compiled by Ibn Fortua. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah, the of natives, course. The natives were not muted. In, they are loud and clear. And there are more, uh, <laughs> uh, more interesting episodes where Heinrich Bath is interrogated by natives about his knowledge of Africa, about his religious belief and so on. Similarly, earlier travelers like Clapperton, uh, in his encounter with Dan Bello, uh, Clapperton had to retreat by saying that actually he is a theologian and the kind of questions that Bello is asking him about uh, Christian theology, he is not expert to answer those. Uh, so, decolonization in that sense, you can begin to see I'm problematizing. Yeah. The, yeah. Uh, the notion of the colonial pedigree of the uh, academy, 
Now, there's another sense of decolonization, which is rooted in uh, what you may call the global inequality that characterizes the colonial powers and their former colonies, which has been more problematic than the devaluing. The devaluing has been roundly critiqued, condemned, and no credible scholar in the European Academy will today uh, reoccur those ones. But the global inequality that is directly a legacy of colonialism, uh, historically, that one is much more deeply entrenched. It is more insidious in terms of understanding its uh, dynamics and how it works. And uh, it is uh, negative consequences on especially the African Academy. Those ones are, are much more severe. So maybe we can talk about the inequality now, and then we'll come back to the to the devaluing of different views and and the more nuanced sort of picture that you're you're presenting with the case of of Barth. What what do you see as the sort of the core of this inequality? What's the how would you describe it? Well, at the most obvious level is the resources available for yeah. scholars yeah. to conduct original research. Yeah. Um, resources not only in terms of monetary money to go and travel and do interviews, but also um, libraries, uh, laboratories, uh, access to most recent scholarship. Uh, these are severely limited. So maybe we can put this in a bit more historical context, because I I do think, and you mentioned this before, that the university has changed dramatically, right? And you know, and this whole and the and the landscape of public debate and and where the interesting ideas are coming from, I think, has changed quite dramatically. And you've seen this happen, right? Because you were you schooled in Nigeria first, then went to university there, then went to the U.S. and came back here. So so if you think back to the and, and I have an image, quite an idealized, romantic, maybe even image of universities when you went to university, uh, I, th I think. But what was it like to be uh, a student in Nigeria at the time yeah. that you were there? Well, I, I graduated uh, with my first degree in 1983. Uh, and if you recall our previous discussion, that was the beginning of the worst time for the higher education in Africa. That was the beginning of the crisis of... Uh, state-run enterprises. Yeah. And in 1983, there were not a single private university in Nigeria. They were all government institutions. It, it was a transition time. The 70s were the 60s and 70s were the golden age when the giants of uh, African intellectual giants were produced in Makrere, in uh, Nairobi, in Dar es Salaam, in Ibadan, and uh, in Ghana, Accra, and so on. The 70s, 60s, and 70s uh, were the days when the giant intellectual accomplishment, the classic books that were vigorously responding to the devaluing, the decolonization, in the sense of devaluing uh, African cultures, history, and societies, the historiography of African authors in the 1960s and 70s was pitched heavily against the colonial portrayal of the African past. Some, some of the big names, those were the decades. And we also add that the, the, that decade also carries on the nationalist sentiment. Uh, so much of the literature was nationalistic, in both the good sense of it, in the sense that it is patriotic, but also in the more negative sense of it, that it is chauvinistic. Uh, there's a sense of nationalism that is chauvinistic, right? That you can easily 
Tembitungwi uh, and them kind of nationalism. But you call them the giants, right? And I have the yeah. same image. But, but, but these were people who were trained in colonial times. Yes, some of them, some of them. Some of them were even trained in Europe or in the United States. Yeah. But by the 1980s, you have the ones who have done their training in Nigeria. Okay, yes. In Nigerian universities. Yeah. yeah. Uh, their BA, their master's degree, and their PhDs were produced in Nigerian universities. In what they call the uh, in African university, let's say. The one they call the premier. I mean, the colonial universities began in the 1940s. Ibadan was established in 1940. The beginnings of Amadou University were in the 1950s. The institutes that will complement it to become the university in 1962. We were already training people in the 1950s and 60s. So that by the end of the 1970s, the European lecturers were no more the, the key players. By 1970s, there were very few, very, very few. They were all retired, all their contracts were not renewed. So the generation of um, uh, scholars. There were those who had their PhDs from London. Yeah. They were back teaching by 1962, 63, 64. And their students were already getting their PhDs by the early 1970s, 76, yeah. 74, 75. But by the 1980s, okay, one other po important point about that generation of intellectuals, they were nationalistic. I explained that. Yeah. They were also Marxists. Uh, they were largely also Marxist, very polemical, very uh, aggressive, um, part of the international, I think, train of Marxist intellectual uh, thinking, very heavily influenced by that. By the 1980s, we are now into transition. The early signs of uh, problem were on the horizon, not clearly discernible, but the first generation were largely retiring. Uh, the universities were becoming overwhelmed by larger and larger enrollment of students without corresponding increase in the resources. And this was taking a toll on the quality, on the research, on the instruction. Uh, there were classes that in the 1960s, 1980s, would have students in the number in the order of 20, 25. Large classes would be 30 to 50. But by the 1980s, we are beginning to have classes with 200 students, with 500 students. Uh, some courses that are required by several departments, like general math, we were beginning to have students in the thousands. And the facilities were not matching that kind of growth. The, the signs of problem were already there by the 19, uh, beginning of the 1980s. One structure adjustment began in 1985, with a heavy cut in public spending on education, uh, the situation just took a die. The precipitous decline, heavy crisis set in. And then population growth continued, resources continued to decline, the population of students continued to increase. Uh, you can see the dynamic at work. The windy resources and increasing demands. Yeah. So and so you still you you were still in university with these Marxists and the nationalists, but and you left by 1983. That's I haven't by 1993. No, I have not left. That's when I had my first degree. Ah, I okay. began I began teaching. I began teaching in 1984. After you earn your first degree in Nigeria, 
you do one year national service. And my first appointment uh, at the University of Jos was 1984, October 1984. And I stayed through 1988 when I finished my master's degree from Bayero University uh, before my surgeon abroad. I went to the United States in 1989. So you saw the whole transition. Yes, I was around during the difficult years um, in, the 19, in the 1980s, which continued through the early 1990s. Massive uh, increase in student populations, a massive fall in available funding. That was the dynamic that took heavy toll on the university system. Not only in Nigeria, I think across Africa. And if we think about uh, sort of the questions that were dominant, did, did you see the the kinds of topics that were debated or maybe the methods that were used? So you described these the dominance of the gold standard of the quantitative social sciences. Is, is this the time that that also entered? What happened to the to the research questions and the debates and, and the methods in this period? Okay, so the, the, the 70s and 80s were preoccupied with decolonization, especially in the social sciences. In the hard science and engineering, they were preoccupied with development, uh, economic development, industrialization, agricultural transformation, engineering, construction. Those were the dominant uh, intellectual preoccupation in the 70s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, by the 1980s and 90s, there's certain weariness, certain fatigue with the decolonization debate. People are beginning to say, you know what, we are not better than the colonial uh, heritage. We have not made significant improvement on what the colonialists left. The discourse on nationalism is beginning to kind of sound tired. And then with the crisis of uh, uh, dwindling resources, more bread and butter preoccupation now we are, <laughs> we are worrying people. Self-employment, consultancy, sources of additional income, part-time teaching, and things like that. People began to be distracted by more intellectual, <laughs> away from more intellectual preoccupations of nationalism, African independence, uh, industrialization of Africa. Those issues began to, <laughs> to be less, less and less resonant. They don't speak to people's immediate concerns. Instead, this was a decade of entrepreneurship. How do you make a living? How do you how do you get by? How do you improvise and so on and so forth? And this uh, continues and to peak speed, and it is also during uh, the 1990s on that the scientific model, uh, this modern quantitative model, begin to make its presence felt, because now during that decade we begin to see resources now beginning to trickle in from funding agencies, <clears throat> from uh, people like me who managed to leave the country under whatever circumstances and were living abroad. So they were reaching out to friends who are back home with uh, call for proposals, with grant funding, grant opportunities, and, and things like that. Uh, uh, so by then, of course, this international model, the scientific model in the social sciences was the renamed uh, model and colleagues who were abroad coming to encounter with it. That's why I encountered it uh, and I had to live with it. Uh, then colleagues who are still at home, but somehow in contact with uh, colleagues abroad, got introduced to it 
it is the way you win the proposal. If you are going to write a proposal for funding, whether it is Fulbright or it is uh, whether uh, if you are looking to win any one of those type of uh, prestigious uh, opportunities, and the generation were good enough to compete internationally and still uh, win some. Um, that's why they encountered this this the dominance of the scientific model that we we discuss about, and also then the policy, the trickling of the policy reorientation of privatization and deregulation of the economy uh, now reach the universities. I told you that by in 1983 there was a single private university in Nigeria. I think those began to show on the horizon as far as I can tell from 1999 or thereabout. I'm not sure what is the date that they began to be uh, allowed. And then this, this, the resources of the state become somewhat rebumped after the, the, um, the modernization of the economy. So people, many people in Africa will be unwilling to acknowledge the contribution of structural adjustment to the modernization of the economy, but I think it played a major role in, as, in removing the state from its monopoly of the critical sector of the economy and allowing private entrepreneurship, private investment to thrive. So that happened in the universities also. So we begin to have private universities and we begin to have the push for the universities to generate revenues, not just to, not to depend only on government funding, but to generate revenues, either through research or through consultancy or through partnership with foreign funding. And however they might be able to do it, they should generate uh, uh, additional revenue. And also the continuing population growth finally was being addressed. So more universities were being established. To the point where there are now hundreds of universities, right? Hundreds. I think in Nigeria alone, there are, I was trying to do the computation of calculations. Uh, government-owned universities, federal and states, uh, stand at around 200, 171. 171 universities between federal and states. And then you add in private universities, now they shoot up to around 200 plus. And this is within the last 30 years also. In 1999, there were less than 50 universities in Nigeria. Majority of them, majority of them uh, government-owned. And do you feel that scholars have come back to the intellectual debate a little bit? So you, you described how they left the, the intellectual debate a little bit and went to, towards getting by in the 90s yeah. because they had to. Have they come back? Is there... Yes. Yes. By, by and large, uh, they are back, but uh, differently. They didn't come back in the same fashion of the generation of the 60s and 70s. They are different. This one, they are different kind of intellectuals. Uh, their training is not as good, and their scholarly productivity is not as good as the other one. Uh, it is highly localized, poor quality. What do you mean? What do you mean localized? Uh, they don't engage international scholarly community. They write very locally. Uh, they, they, I mean, a department will set up its own journal. A department of um, biology will establish the journal of the department of biology of university of so place, and members of the department will publish their journal, their articles in their own journals that they edit, <laughs> and. Uh, 
and they pay money to publish it. I mean, like, uh, <laughs> how local can you be? How local can you be? <laughs> and of course, unsurprisingly, the quality the quality is not um, what it should be because it it compromises on it is compromised on many critical requirements of academic integrity. Uh, self-publishing, originality, and peer review, editorial control, all of these elements are compromised. And do they also focus their research questions locally? Yes, yes. There's a lot of uh, very locally focused research in my history of my local community, uh, colonial impact in my uh, tribe, uh, that kind of localism. Yes, that kind of localism. Few aspire to be national, even fewer have regional Africa or West African purview. Um, international purview is very rare here and there only, very, very few. And, and if we then come back to the devaluing of different perspectives and maybe epistemologies and, and ways of thinking, because that's the indeed, as you, as you highlighted, the other, the other, one of the other big arguments in the decolonization, let's say, movement or debate. Um, and and you, so you started by indeed bringing nuance and bringing up the, the, the early travelers and, and showing how the African voice was definitely at least also in their works. Um, but, but so if you, if you look at today, what's the, are there perspectives that are being devalued? Are there alternative ways of thinking that, that science isn't in looking at or, or, or disregarding? Mm. Well, um, yeah, yeah. There are different epistemologies that are privileged. Uh, certainly, there is a certain science of scientism, what has been called physics envy. That, uh, yeah, that like physics is able to discover universal laws in a scientific fashion that is not uh, the product of, that, that is not contaminated by human preference and human interest. It's like pure science that is uh, the gold standard. Uh, in science, it, to what extent is this notion, this model of science, neutral, objective, quantifiable knowledge that is free from uh, human interference, uh, like bias, prejudice, and things like that? Uh, that is the gold standard <coughs> of uh, the the epistemology or the type of knowledge that is uh, valued, and you find it in the social sciences. Uh, increasingly, there's a very standard format of how valid knowledge in the social sciences can be produced. Is the one that followed a replicable, um, the, the basic criteria, right? <coughs> and in our universities, at least especially in my university, the template for graduate research, for example, they follow that model of the pure sciences. In all disciplines. Uh, in all disciplines. And we've been teaching and screaming from the history department. We say, look, history doesn't talk about data. We talk about sources. Yeah. <laughs> and we do source criticism. And we don't do uh, triangulation. Or we do triangulation in the history. But we don't do the kind of quantitative uh techniques of validating the historical knowledge that we produce so there is that sense of the privileging yeah 
or pure scientific model of knowledge. Uh, people doing less than that, they are usually either mathematically illiterate, and that's why they are doing that. <laughs> they lack the intellectual sophistication to grasp mathematical modeling. Um, or they, or they have something deficient about them. That's the, that's the idea. Uh, this is the, that's the, that's the idea. Yeah. Uh, and in any case, they are not doing the gold standard, the science of the gold standard. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, of course, there are different traditions of social inquiry in the social sciences, in the historical background to the uh, modern social sciences, the likes of the founding figures. If you take, for example, the key, the key German sociologist, uh, Max Weber, and uh, his interpretive technique of social science uh, approach, which has wide resonance, especially in anthropology, in political science, and even in sociology and in other disciplines. Uh, it has its own standards for rigor, for validity, for reliability and so on, but they are not the same as you have in the quantitative um, model. Uh, so this this one one two one, one, one challenge one area of the different types of knowledge that um, are competing with the quantitative model becoming kind of an imperial uh, seeking to dominate and invalidate or render less uh, valuable uh, any knowledge that cannot be quantified, cannot be reduced to quantitative equations and things like that. And it, traditionally, it was economics that has this aspiration. But increasingly, other branches of the social sciences have become under tremendous pressure to adopt the quantitative method. Even history, you know, there's what they call pilometrics. Uh, there, were, there were movements, and still there are movements that uh, want to use quantitative methods in doing history. Uh, and it is just educated. Yeah. And are you seeing that? So, so you're saying it's increasing now this this dominance of the gold standard of of the physics type of science. But but is or is this is this a colonial legacy or is this a more recent thing? What do you think? Good question. Good question. To what extent is it rooted in uh, colonial legacy? I'm not sure because even in it is more recent actually. I think. Uh, because if you look at 19th century and early 20th century social science, all the outstanding figures of that tradition were not using quantitative methods. Uh, the rise of quantitative, the rise of using quantitative method, especially in the social sciences, other than economics, yeah, is more recent. Much of African academics want to meet the international standard. There is uh, a pressure to publish in what they call internationally reputable journals and translate. That means journals based in uh, North America or Western Europe and to some extent Asia. Uh, and to the extent that if you submit your article to any one of those uh, journals, uh, the, especially in the social sciences, the tendency is that they may use those criteria to evaluate your uh, submissions to accept or reject it. So there is a kind of uh, hegemonic dominance in a 
subterranean way that is being enforced. You understand what I mean? Yeah. Uh, African scholars are under tremendous pressure to publish. Uh, and this is, I think, universal. Academics everywhere is the, 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 the dictum is what? Publish or perish. So there are a lot of Nigerian publications going to Indian journals, Pakistani journals, Malaysian journals. And perhaps before too long, we'll see many more also in Chinese, English language journals when those begin to, to proliferate because uh, the Chinese uh, transformations has been massive and has been extremely admired in Africa. Uh, and also, oh yes, oh yes. And also the Chinese drive into Africa has been very forceful, has been uh, in all aspects, including the academy. Uh, significant initiatives uh, have seen collaborations between various Chinese universities and African universities, including exchange of students and so on and so forth. So before too long, we will also begin to see many African publications perhaps appearing in Chinese academic journals. The the legacy, I, I guess, of, of colonialism in this is maybe that that African academics are trying to publish elsewhere, right? They're trying to, live, to, to, to operate by the standards of these other publishing houses, of these other academics. Because this dynamic of, of a, a dominance of quantitative thinking is not is indeed not unique to Africa, right? This is a big this is no. a big fight in the social sciences everywhere. Oh, oh, absolutely, absolutely. But but indeed there is this additional dimension of um, this being an external standard in some way. And so these collaborations with China, are they different than collaborations with, uh, with European or North, North American scholars? I think so. However, collaboration with China is just imagined yeah. in the last five to 10 years. And it is quantos and it is characteristics are just taking shape. I know that in my university, for example, a uh, new program in uh, railway engineering has been uh, put together between my university and another Chinese university in which uh, our students will spend years doing some basic science uh, engineering courses, um, railway engineering in China, and Chinese students will also come to our campus to study and uh, the certification. I think they will have a certification that is from both universities. Now, this is a big one. There were smaller initiatives in like introducing the teaching of Chinese uh, language in our university. Uh, the Chinese embassy and the Chinese construction firm in Abuja provide funding for native Chinese lecturers to come from all the way from China. They are living in Abu. They are teaching our students to learn uh, classical Chinese. I don't know which version of China they are Chinese they are learning, but I know they have classes, they have language lab, and they have students who are enrolling in, uh, to learn Chinese. And also, um, we have one scholar who did his PhD in Chinese, and he finished and came back, he's not teaching in linguistics. So there is traffic going to, to China. The, the, the academic traffic between China and Africa is uh, increasing steadily. And in this, this really maps into the decolonization theme because uh, China is presenting an alternative model of economic development and modernization that is not tied to the old colonial 
powers. Yeah. Maybe we can change it. Also go back to this uh, idea of alternative epistemology. So indeed, there is the, the, yes. the, 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 the notion of the gold standard in the physics entry, but there is also the, the argument that there are alternative African epistemologies and ways of thinking that are ignored. And we talked about this earlier, uh, that, right? About That's right. This yeah. might be. So, so maybe you can explain what exactly. you Exactly. Yeah. So yes, uh, this one is uh, more uh, unclear, more clear, it's not clearly articulated. I can give you my observations about it. Yeah. In one sense, you will have uh, what you may call symbolic and even mystic way of thinking. And miss here in, in a technical sense, there is a, a field of study of myth in, um, in religious studies, and also some in literature. Yeah. Uh, mythic thinking is uh, one paradigm of thinking uh, that transgress boundaries, most especially logical boundaries, but also categorical boundaries that, uh, that would be forcefully uh, enforced by scientific model of learning. For, to give an example, in mythic thinking, humans become animals. And animals become humans. Yeah. And you you make your point by portraying human behavior through animal behavior. For, for example, in Hausa traditions, the hyena is a coward uh, <laughs> um, beast. And also very um there's the house word is quite a, like delicious things, but it like meats in particular. Uh, it's, it's not a nice beast. Okay. So <laughs> you can describe somebody as a hyena, it's no compliment. But if you can describe somebody's behavior like a, a lion, do you understand what I mean? Yeah, of course. There is a model of thinking that you can call mystic thinking. Uh, mystic thinking is studied more academically in religious studies and in literature. And it is the type of thinking that does not operate by the conventional logical categories. For example, or mutual exclusion, it can either be A or not A. It cannot be both A and not A at the same time. Um, symbolic thinking is closely related also to mythic thinking, the, the difference may not be that clear, may not be that big. Uh, part of uh, the dynamic of mythic thinking is it is symbolisms. The way in which, uh, for example, lions plus royalty, for example. Uh, the way in which uh, elephants symbolize size. Yeah. Just sheer size and things like that. So symbolic and mythic thinking are alternative way of thinking that decidedly are not scientific and are not they are not clearly well uh, appreciated even in the academy even though it is there in the academy if you study literary theory you will find <coughs> the importance excuse me you find the importance of myth in literature and in conveying meaning and experience and communicating it has uh, its own power of communication that is really matched by uh, conventional language uh, in a sense you can think of it like you know if you think of mathematics as a language 
that is especially expressive, especially for the sciences. You can think of uh, mythic thinking as a language for expression, especially of meaning and experience and illustration and making points. Um, and and so. It, when I when I I find this a fascinating point, and when I when I listen to it, I I think of Chino Achebe's writing and 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 all the and sort of there, there that kind of, but also of political cartoons in newspapers. So political cartoons in Nigerian yeah. newspapers are much yeah. have so many more layers of meaning than Certainly. than um, sort of political cartoons in Dutch newspapers. So if if that is that the kind of direction you're thinking, it is. It yeah. is also in uh, in Nigerian films. Yeah. It, has yeah. a, it is, has a major role in Nigerian films, especially in costume, in plot setting, in character, and, and things like that. There's a scholars of Nigerian film who can say more about the role of this kind of thinking in the films. And the, the, I think the power of this mode of thinking is its ability to communicate with people who understand that language. It has a certain profound uh, meaning that is lost in ordinary language. And I had occasion to examine uh, some of the anti-colonial discourse uh, that was articulated in this kind of language. The portrayal of predator uh, prey relationship, the colonial relationship as one that is analogous to the kind of relationship between a rat and a cat, a cat will eat a rat any day, nicely, quickly, easily. Um, so predator and prey. And to say that colonialism had made big changes, it says the relation has been reversed. Now a rat is chasing away a, a, a cat. What did never expect to happen? It's a profound way to say social relations have been turned upside down, uh, that colonialism has upended social relations upside down. That's why the relation of predator and prey, that has a certain um, um, veritable reality to it. Yeah. The predator will always kill and eat the prey. There's no other way around. Yet here we are, that relationship has been, lo and behold, has been completely uh, turned upside down. What a way to say, uh, Colonialism has a revolutionary impact on African societies. Yeah, and and so, so Nigerians in 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 everyday life, do you speak? I mean, in when you speak to each other, when you debate public life, when you debate, yeah. is it is it much more sim symbolic? Is it does it use more of these? It does. Yes, it does. And and, and uh, the simplest form of it is the use of proverbs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is the universal every language has proverbs. But the use of proverbs is an example of mythic way of thinking, especially uh, the African proverbs that I'm familiar with, because they transgress boundaries, they transgress logical boundaries that scientific thinking will insist upon. Um, so yes, in everyday speech, you see this type of thinking. Sometimes you see it very clearly, some other times it is not so clear. And this takes me to the new, the imagined type of alternative thinking uh, that we discussed with you. That is the the kind of approximate thinking, yes. the thinking that resists precision. Yeah, it's it's still in the domain of what we may call empirical reality. 
animals are not becoming humans. Uh, it is in the domain of empirical reality. However, it is largely characterized by its resistance to precision and its insistence on approximation. So what is the example of this? The example of this that I have found so fascinating with my friends in Abuja. I don't live in Abuja, but every time I, live, I travel to Abuja, I need to go to different parts of Abuja. I need addresses yeah. because I can now then put them on a Google map. I can easily find my way. Now, if you ask people in Abuja, what is your address? They don't know what is their address. Yeah. And they will start to describe the location for you. Okay, the address is near the former building of the Central Bank of Nigeria. That's not an address. <laughs> an address is a number and a name. Uh, 55 on Adetokumbu Ademola Street. That's an address. But don't tell you that. I reminded one of my friends, I said, look, give me a name and they say, no, we don't use that one. So that is the resistance that I'm talking about, resistance to pre precision. There was a time I spent more than 30 minutes trying to locate uh, a house that was given to me by that kind of uh, description. I was utterly unsuccessful and totally frustrated. <laughs> I insisted, and then finally, somebody gave me the address, 25, house number 25, Jesse Jackson Street. And in less than five minutes, I found the house. Um, this is an example of a broader pattern of thinking you can observe in uh, imprecise thinking, not just because the, it happens just accidentally. No, we will not do precise thinking. This is the thinking we, we want to Why? do. Why? What's the, what's the resistance? Why? Why did, where does the resistance come from? Our precision is not easy and perhaps it's not natural. If you observe natural phenomena, um, precision in the sense of mathematical precision is not observable. Precision is imposed on natural order of things. If you take geometry, for example, the, especially the old type of geometry, if you see the measurement of space, natural space, contours, valleys, you don't have straight squares and rectangles in the topography of the earth, for example. It is much more rough and unbalanced and you have to impose if you want precision, you have to impose geometry on the, the surface of the earth. Geometry is not inherent. Geometry is why you have precisions, right? A triangle is, has how many degrees? A circle has how many degrees? It has how many diameters? Those are fixed, those are precise. Uh, but if you look at the topography of the earth, uh, it doesn't have precise geometry to it. It is not at least apparent. Yeah. So to what extent, even social relations for that matter, to what extent do they, are they predicated on precision? Precision is not easy. You have to impose it. Uh, whereas approximation comes naturally. Good enough, they call it, I think, in the behavioral economics. The, if you take uh, in economics, I think classical model want to use precise way of thinking, which is maximization, of return. And how do you maximize You quantify it. But in behavioral economics, that is not, the classical model is not realistic. It doesn't happen in the market. <laughs> it, is, it is almost impossible. How do you ascertain the optimum price in the market? You have to know every 
every seller of the product and the cost of assembling that already begin to introduce complication into the and most buyers in a market use good enough approximation this is what i want is the price right i do have the time to explore it more is it good enough is it the best no you cannot the best is it good enough approximation i'll go with it so approximation is is practical approximate thinking is is practical it's perhaps more natural not only in social relations social reality but i will even venture to say perhaps contra physics physics will probably would say i'm an illiterate to which i would <laughs> gladly concede to which i would gladly concede in physics there is relentless search for precision right for universal laws that are applicable in precise ways only that more advances in physics is challenging that model uh in string theory in quantum mechanics uh new trends in thinking i imagine that are putting the newtonian even uh, einsteinian model of physics into doubt uh but in social relations uh precision is even much harder you know this in political science david yeah yeah, yeah i do uh, no i do and but and at the and at the same time uh i always tell my students Right, precisely. Right, be be precise uh -huh. and say there exactly you what yeah. you mean. And try. So, yeah. so, 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 I, I see the, I, I, yeah, I'm struggling. I'm thinking. <laughs> see, 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 see the impossibility of precision in legal thinking. Yeah, a law is crafted to be precise for its effect to work. Yet you need an army of lawyers and an army of judges to ascertain the meaning the precise meaning yeah. of the law that has that takes time to write in precise ways such that uh, the effect because the effect of the law is great it can touch life and death so the legal language aspires for precision but precision eludes it and that's why you need arbiters to to argue that this is the meaning of the law and you need judges at the end of this day to say yes this is the meaning of the law now only for that meaning to be revised and changed at a later uh time the meaning of equality in constitutional law uh say over the last 50 years or over the last 30 years uh so you get the point that why precision precision is difficult and perhaps it's not very natural much social behavior certainly can, cannot proceed normally if it insists on mathematical precision. So, whereas whereas uh, qualitative inquiry of the traditions of Max Weber and company has a room, perhaps not the privileged one. You still write in qualitative inquiry, you get published, you get uh, you achieve your own. Uh, although in certain disciplines, you wouldn't receive the recognition you deserve no. if you don't have tables and charts and, and quantity. This type of thinking, proximate thinking, is illegitimate. There's no room for it. No, so, okay, so, uh, so we have approximate thinking and we have symbolic mm, thinking, mythical thinking. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and then you have religious, right? You have religious thinking, you have theological 
uh, teaching of various styles. Yeah, because that's the argument I've also heard a lot, particularly in northern Nigeria, where, where it comes to Islam, right? Where, yeah. they, in, where, where yes. the argument is that Islam provides a whole different epistemology, a whole different, a whole different way of thinking. But, and this is yeah. the interesting point, everything is in it. Mm. At least some, some mm. Muslims tell me this, right? Everything is in the Quran. It, does, yes. it can replace everything. Yeah. It can replace science. It can, yes. so, so how does that work? Okay, so yeah, now you are into domain of a different epistemology, right? Uh, uh, religious thinking. Uh, extremely complex with several trends, uh, several genres of religious thinking. You have religious scriptural thinking. And that is the one that is alluded to when they tell you that everything is in the Quran. And the Quran says so, that nothing is omitted in the Quran. Uh, so scriptural thinking has its own dynamics. Uh, scripture is historically conditioned. It is produced in a given historical moment. And it, it must necessarily speak to that historical moment. It, it has to attend to the sociology of the moment, the politics, the economy, the culture, the religious environment in which this, the scripture uh, is, is produced, whether it is produced theologically, like it is revealed by God from above, to the prophet in a particular town and place, it will speak to that particular town and place. At the same time, at the same time, the scripture speaks universally to human condition. This tension between the specificity and universality of scriptural way of thinking produce a whole branch of religious knowledge called exegesis, the interpretation of scripture. And it gets to be extremely complex, especially in religions in which scripture is the foundational formulation of the religion, the foundational primary formulation of the religion, like Islam, like Judaism. Christianity, the primary formulation of Christianity is not in scripture, it's in the life of Jesus Christ. That is the primary formulation of, originally the Christian scriptures are Christian are, are church records, they are church documents. Uh, they are not the primary statement of the religion. But in, in, in religions in which the primary statement, the foundational formulation of the religion is scriptural, then the importance of the exegesis is huge. So if you take Judaism, for example, you have Talmud, uh, Talmud Torah, and then you have Mishnah, and then you have uh, Tosefta. There are countless generals of discourse on scripture, never ending discourse on scripture. It works with the tension that defines scriptural thinking, local specificity and universality. It speaks to human condition universally, but it speaks from a platform that is tangible and specific. This is one, one genre of religious teaching. Yeah, scriptural thinking. And so, in in that scriptural yeah. thinking, for example, now in northern Nigeria, what are the debate? What what is this about? What are the debates? What's uh, what, what are the current topics in scriptural? Well, we have the, the the problem that confront Muslims around the world: violence in the name of religion. Yeah. Uh, to what extent does the Quranic verses justifies the violence of Boko Haram, or to what extent do they not 
justifies the violence of Boko Haram. And there is there has been always a scriptural discourse in Nigerian Islam. It tends to be more prominent during Ramadan. That was when it used to be learned scholars who do commentaries of the Quran in local languages during the month of Ramadan. But in the past 25, 30 years, this has become not confined to Ramadan alone. Uh, it is widespread in new media, including now social media, commentaries on the Quran, on television. Initially, it was on radio. And then it was recorded on audio cassettes in the 1970s and 80s. You know those yeah, ones, yeah. right? They get they get uh, converted to electronic format in CDs and DVDs, yeah. and and now they get broadcast on TV live, especially from the 1990s with the deregulation of the media landscape. Private television stations and private radio stations become possible. So the two models are religious organizations like uh, individual organization obtain a license and open a 24-hour radio uh, television channel in which it is just religious programming all along. And there and then you will see dozens of discourses using Quranic scriptural material on politics, on AIDS, on COVID, on agriculture, on anything. On everything. On anything, on every topic. That's why they what they tell you it is every day in the Quran. Yeah. What they mean is that the scripture speaks to universally, speaks universally to human condition, whatever it is, and whatever aspects of it. Yeah. There is a scriptural mode of talking about it. Um, now, this is just one sub branch of religious thought. Yeah. Uh, when you convert religious scriptural discourse into logical categories. Then you have theology. Theology is rational. It works with premises of Aristotelian logic. It seeks to demonstrate proof regardless of faith, so to say. Um, I think it is an Anselm who said theology is reason, first seeking understanding through reason. Theology relies on reason to achieve understanding from faith position. In fact, if you take, if you take the neologism of theology, it's similar to what? Psychology. So theology, biology, it is predicated on logical, rational categories. Uh, and it's totally different from scriptural discourse, scriptural religious discourse. Its constraints are different. Its logic is different. Uh, its discourse is different. Uh, oftentimes, there is traffic. Oftentimes, there is traffic between scriptural and theological. Uh, and in fact, you can argue that uh, logical and uh, theological thought is the translation of scriptural thought into logical categories. Can you give an example? This is because this is complicated to me. The, the theology of logos, the theology of uh, the, 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 the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is primarily articulated in narrative. When you begin to explore, it is logical, logical meaning. That's why you get to the theology of the logos. 
the nature of the God, the nature of God, the divinity in Jesus Christ. In the narrative, there are no argumentations. Jesus was the was the Son of God, who uh, is God that assumed human form to demonstrate to human beings what God expects of them. When you begin to ask what component of the Jesus who lived in Nazareth was human and which one is divine, you're asking logical categories. And you get into theology of divinity. And you get the theology of um, the Trinity. And that one is not it's not the same as you find in the Gospels. In the Gospels, there's, there's no discourse about Trinity. Jesus is the Son of God, is God who assumed human form and lived on earth to demonstrate to humanity what he expects of them and how they will make a happier life, how to reconcile with God. This is in narrative, yeah. in narrative form. Yeah. There are no argumentations. There are no logical questions about, okay, what percentage of the Jesus of Nazareth is divine, which percentage is human, and how so? Uh, if, if, if he is divine, what about his mother? Is she also so divine? Uh, how is a human divine? These are logical questions you're asking. How do you answer them? In theology. This is, these are two types of religious thoughts. Um, and both can cover are, any kind of question you can think about. Any question, because religion has, has that dynamic tension that defines it. It is specific, but it aspires to universal validity. It speaks to human condition in all its forms at all times in all places. You can be Christian anywhere in the world at all times. There are no places in which you cannot be Christian. There are no times in which you cannot be Christian. You don't have to be a native of Nazareth. To, to be, because you're not, do you have to be a native of Saudi Arabia or Mecca? Do you need to be a native of Banares in order to be a, a, a Buddhist? Uh, but those, those were the locals, those were the specific historical specificity for the emergence of this religion within a sociology, a history, a politics, a language, a culture. That's why, that's why they came into being. But they aspire and they inspire universal. Uh, implication. So that that pattern creates its own logic of thinking. Um, so and maybe this betrays my sort of lack of knowledge about this, but I I I, I, I have always felt that there is a d distinction between uh, religious thinking that starts from the premise that it's true, that yeah. starts from the premise of faith, and there is yeah. religion. So there is thinking about religion. That doesn't start there, but there just looks at religion as a phenomenon that can be studied. Yeah. But it doesn't, it doesn't. So is, is that distinction, is that there in, in sort of? Well, it's, it's not sophisticated. It may be there, but it doesn't capture the depth and the complexity of religious thinking. Uh, truth is problematic category. Uh, logical, logical cogency. Uh, convincing uh, the truth resonates. There is truth that resonates, but it's not subject to logical demonstration. You cannot prove it mathematically or logically, but it makes meaning. You say how true when you hear it. i give you an example of a song. Uh, this is a song about uh, two young lovers who broke apart, boyfriend and girlfriend. 
And Cynthia was singing like, um, take your, what is it, you are not welcome anymore. But if you hear a song, it may say something in song that is so true, it resonates experientially, but it is not a intellectually proven truth. That is where people find the room to say, my religious truth, though not subject to scientific proof, is resonantly true. Uh, my experience of divine power, the presence of God in my everyday life, is so overwhelmingly true that logical truth is not adequate enough to express it or to capture it. Uh, if logical proof of expressing the truth is not capable of capturing the true meaning of my religious experience, too bad for the logical truth. <laughs> it doesn't invalidate. So if you, if you start from the premise that um, religious thought is not demonstrably true, uh, what model of truth are you working with? You are working with the model of logically demonstrable truth. You are not working with the model of truth that is resonant, that is experientially valid. I wish I could remember that song. It is like, take your word and go home. You are not welcome anymore. Uh, for people who broke up, uh, when you tell your ex, they get out of the door. Uh, yeah, that's part of the song. Get out of the door. You are not welcome anymore. That is true expression of how you tell an ex. Do, do you get what I'm saying? If you yes. take literature, if you take literature, literature captures truth about human experience that is not subject to logical categories of proven truth. So am I right in summarizing it by saying you don't have to believe, you don't have to be a Muslim to see the truth in some of, in, in, in parts of what Islam says. Indeed, in, indeed. The, the theological argument, actually theological religious thinking, cast in, in theological terms, is addressed not to believers, but to non-believers. It appeals to human reason. To what extent it is successful is another matter. <laughs> That's a different point. But the, the foundational primary statement of religious truth is missing. It is translations is what takes it into scriptural language or logical language. And usually theological language is addressed to doubters within the community of faith, but also to non-believers. Yeah. Because it is predicated on... Aristotelian logic, of all types of logic, believe me, it's Aristotelian logic is the tool of theology. Uh, modern, the modern logic has, of course, uh, moved uh, away from Aristotelian categories and become more um, precise, more mathematical. But traditional theology relied on Aristotelian logic to articulate its truth. Yeah. And it aspires to convince able person who is capable of doing logical thinking yeah so maybe we can we can shift a little bit and uh, recently a colleague of mine asked um when we were talking mm. about decolonization we were talking about these epistemologies but then also uh she asked the question but is the university the right place in the African context um, for to focus on when you talk about intellectual debate is the university the right place is this the right institution for for the African 
sort of uh, context, or are there other places where the intellectual debate, the public debate, the the, the sort of space of ideas is created? And I found this a very well, difficult question. Yeah, uh, certainly the university is the primary place for intellectual exchange. That's why you expect intellectual exchange to flourish, right? That's what it is all established. But there are alternative arenas uh, of the debate. Uh, certainly popular newspapers, popular media, uh, that's one arena where uh, the debate is going on. Uh, film, certainly film has become extremely important medium where you find these different genres of thinking. Uh, are presenting all kinds of positions, staking all kinds of claims, including policy prescriptions that are articulated. Like, for example, a typical problem in contemporary Nigeria is insecurity, uh, public insecurity because of violent crime, kidnapping, and all of that. It's a favorite topic in the films. Uh, it's a, an issue that is discussed in the films, including how better to uh, some of the insecurity problems. So, films is another arena where this uh, debate um, goes on. And only the various media platforms, radio, TV, and certainly websites of yeah. all kinds. Uh, social media. Social media. Yeah. Uh, these debates are raging there. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes you have to be observant to detect the different strands of thinking that are at war. Uh, sometimes the debate gets so um rockers so competing partly because people are speaking in different <laughs> languages in different epistemologies and they're speaking english language but all right but they are also speaking mythic language or they're speaking symbolic language or they are speaking uh, scientific language and when you don't realize that your interlocutor <laughs> is speaking in a different uh, epistemology, the possibility for misunderstanding and uh, miscommunication are huge. So somebody says, somebody says the data shows that the Nigerian economy is expanding. The indices for poverty are shrinking. And somebody says, no, that can't be true. <laughs> <laughs> that can be true <laughs> because Nigeria, Nigeria economy is never getting better. It's getting worse. I tell you, my neighbor who used to be, so you get into proximate thinking. The other one said the data. Only they say the data. They are looking at quantitative indicators of the productivity, the GDP, the income, uh, the salaries, the potential, and all of these are available. The Nigerian Bureau of Statistics has become increasingly better in gathering this kind of data. If you look at this, there, that kind of data, you have an image of the Nigerian economy. But if you are, <laughs> if you are using different mode of thinking, like the approximate thinking we talk about, the data perpetrators <laughs> will ring true <laughs> because they, they will be patently inconsistent with what you uh, not in your neighborhood, in your everyday experience. You go to the market, how can you tell me that the economy is better? When I go to the market every day, people are poorer, people are more. Yeah, so you see the mismatch of these different languages and the different epistemologies <laughs> in, in, in these debates. What are the most exciting, yes. what are to you the most exciting sort of spaces where new ideas are coming up in Nigeria? Um, very interesting. The embassies, I'm afraid, don't fit the bill. 
they are not a place where the most exciting ideas are coming. They are um, a phenomenon that had emerged in the aftermath of the structural adjustment program, the think tanks, the private uh, research institutes, uh, centers for legislative studies, uh, centers for democracy and diplomacy, center for criminal for justice. There are many of those type of centers. Uh, they, they are much more uh, vibrant in terms of producing, especially scientific type of knowledge that is data-driven, even if not quantitative, uh, at least qualitative data-driven, more up-to-date, more in the public sphere, more engaged with current challenges and concerns. And if you visit some of these centers, you see the amount of literature they have produced uh, and they are active online. You can check their website and compare the intellectual output with the traditional institutions of learning, like the universities. You will see the clear mismatch, which one is more vibrant. And you may as well also look at the quality. You can take any publication from some of these uh, centers uh, on poverty, on elections, on insecurity, on agriculture, on crime, on any topic take some of their publications, read it, and then look at a publication on similar topic coming from the universities. And you can compare the two, you can see that um, in all likelihood, the one from the centers uh, is better quality and more informed and then the, the one coming from the university. So that's one arena, certainly. And then of course, uh, the media landscape, the phenomenon of 24 hour broadcasting, on yeah. TV, on uh, channels that are competing for revenue and for audience, uh, means they have to invite vibrant conversations on uh, topical issues of the day that will attract audiences on tax, on taxation, on import, on drugs, on prostitution, on, of course, on politics on elections, on legislation. 24-hour media coverage uh, demands ongoing input. Uh, and so it is a platform of vibrant uh, debate. Uh, I don't find all of it informative. Most of the time it tends to be tendentious and uh, not terribly informative, but also um, I prepared documentaries for, for my TV times. I, I, it's interesting. You're not mentioning religious fears. Is that on purpose? Well, I, I mean, they, they are part of the media landscape. Okay, we discussed yeah. it earlier. You remember yeah. Yeah, 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 that yeah. the yeah. matters of the private media means that you have channel TV channels that are 24-hour religious broadcasting, Muslim and Christian, for that matter. You have 24-hour broadcasting on TV. Dozens, dozens, yeah. perhaps hundreds of uh, TV channels that are 100% religious, that 24-hour broadcasting. So they are subset of uh, this one. There are secular ones that are media that like they are just comparable to CNN or Sky TV or any other secular one, but you have religious ones as well. So where do we go from here? What, what are the questions you're working on? Uh, well, you know, we will share a few of our research interests with you. We, we have collaborated on yeah, yeah. religious movements, uh, especially the challenge of religious violence and how to counteract it. Uh, we share intellectual interests on uh, African political institutions, 
especially the traditional uh, political authorities in, in Nigeria, their transformations uh, over the long durée, long historical transformation from the 15th or even earlier, 15th century or even earlier, through the 19th century, which was a century of revolutions across, uh, especially West Africa, not only the Islamic revolutions, but also the revolutions instigated by the transatlantic slave trade and it is ending. And then the onslaught of colonialism. Through all these periods, uh, the African traditional institutions have evolved to respond to the different challenges. And then when we come to the independence era, the modern state, uh, the Westphalian state, and it is international uh, characteristic took root uh, across uh, the continent of Africa, like it did in other parts of the world. Now, <clears throat> of course, it has colonial origins and uh, it has shorter history, but believe it or not, it has been in existence now for several generations, uh, minimally for 60 years of independence. And even at the colonial years, the modern Westphalian state in Africa is over 100 years old. As a technology, as, a, as an institutional configuration of power, you know, it has no rival. Uh, all other modes of political organization have atrophied before the capacity of the modern state to aggregate power and subordinate uh, rivals to its supreme authority, the sovereignty to policy. Uh, as such, uh, African traditional institutions have become subordinated to uh, the modern state in Africa, in Nigeria, but they have not submitted gladly and willingly. Uh, <laughs> they're still kicking and screaming, resisting and shouting and seeking relevance and making all kinds of uh, claims, utilizing mystic, symbolic, and approximate thinking <laughs> to make claims about their capabilities, about how better they can perform than the modern state. Yeah, and, and so even recently, I talked to a Nigerian scholar who said the, 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 the traditional leaders are the future. They are the more sort of uh, embedded and contextualized form of local African government, and we should give them more power and, 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 and bring them back in the, in the vein of decolonization. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the African states have their own uh, weaknesses, but <laughs> make no mistake about their capacity to endure and their capacity to aggregate power and assert it. And they're not going to yield it gladly to African traditional. The argument that they are the future of Africa it takes you back to in which mode of thinking is this argument couch? And uh, what, so therefore, what is the supporting evidence for the argument? Is it, is it a scientific argument? And then you will ask for the data, uh, the data that will support that argument. Yeah, or is it an approximate argument? Yeah, is it a missing thinking in which you look for the symbolism and the resonance, uh, the, the emotional appeal and the imagination that it caters to? Uh, or is it casting approximate thinking in which you can say, okay, this is approximate thinking, it resists precision, 
So if you ask them how will they perform better than the modern state, don't expect good answers because that is a, a question of precision. <laughs> they will make appeal to how they used to be in the past. And because it's approximate thinking, how they used to be in the past is so precise. If you check the history, it wasn't what the thing it has been. So these are some of the ongoing intellectual engagements that I'm working with. And of course, you know that, as you know, my solid base is religious uh, studies, studies of religion. And so there are projects there also, which don't make headlines. Uh, Ibi population is on an obscure religious topic. It would not make as much topic as Ibi population or more topical issues. There you go. And if you yes. do, if, uh, do you have any advice for African studies scholars and PhDers and students who are interested in it? What, what are the what are the kinds of concepts and questions that they should focus on? Uh, that that's hard to for me to to make that kind of suggestion. I, I like to take a kind of a libertarian attitude to it. I mean, I think of the university as an intellectual arena. Uh, so potentially any topic can be intellectually exciting if it is handled by an intellectual who knows how to. Uh, I encourage my students to take any topic of interest to them and. I, Battle with my colleagues in the department that you should not dictate the research of students. Let them come with a topic of interest and push them to make it sound intellectually interesting. But if they ask me and they, 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 my students, that my graduate students, if they, they run out of idea and they really want me to help them with, like spoon feed them with topics, I would I say, okay, we can take uh, contemporary Nigerian history. Um, there are three areas of interest to me in Nigerian contemporary history. The economic transformations that I will discuss at length, uh, the retreat of the state from the dominant control of the economy, which is now in the third, fourth decade of it, and the kind of changes it has instigated in the economy. Uh, as a, a topic for historical research, we don't have the documentation we don't have adequate documentation of the dynamics and the consequences of the retreat of the state from the dominant control of the economy that characterized it in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. What is the documentation of that? It's an area of, of interest to me. I can't afford to do it. Uh, but if uh, if students come and say, invent a topic, and I'll help you make it interesting. If they can't, I say, well, you can cut out a topic in the area of contemporary economic history that documents the evolution of the retreat of the state and the emergence of the private enterprise as the dominant driver of the, the economy. Um, Nigerian democracy uh, has now lasted the longest uh, with significant milestones in the consolidation of democracy, including handover to a opposition political party and uh, successive elections that have continued to become more and more credible and incredible political diversity within the country. There is vibrant opposition. Um, opposition parties have won and lost at state and local elections not at only at the federal level. And this has endured now for over two decades. Again, documentation of this is lacking. The patterns of electoral behavior that has emerged 
that is quite significantly diverging from what it used to be. There's no block voting anymore. There's no ethnic block voting. And uh, electoral phenomena now is people are willing to vote different parties at different electoral levels. For local election, they will vote this party or this candidate into the House of Assembly, for example. And for federal election, they will vote differently. So this kind of the, the dynamics that have evolved with the longest spell of Nigerian democracy and how it differs from the previous spells of the first, second, and third republic. Also, as far as I can tell, it has not been sufficiently documented. So it's an area uh, that I can encourage uh, uh, young researchers to venture into. These are two broad areas. They are contemporary political history and contemporary economic history. But my main area of interest also remain vibrant religion and public affairs, religion and violence, uh, the pattern of religious thoughts that are vibrant in the public sphere. All of these are equally interesting. Yeah, I look forward to seeing what comes out of that very, very yes. soon. I think it's been a wonderful conversation yeah. and very long also. Yes. So thank you very much. Yes, thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this conversation. There will be many more to follow, so stay tuned. You can also go to www.africanose.eu for much more information. And if you have any thoughts, comments, ideas on hosts or guests or any other things to share, please get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you.